0: All right, Nancy. So I figured we'd start this episode with a bit of a quiz. Now, I've given you a word bank full of animal names. What do you think of when I say trash panda?
1: Tra- Raccoon.
0: Raccoon. All right. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Um, how about flying rats? Pigeon. Pantless thunder goose.
1: What? <laughs> 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 what? Kangaroo. Kangaroo no oh thunder goose ostrich ostrich (laughs) ostrich
0: i told you this would be fun yeah uh tyrannosaurus deer
1: tyrannosaurus deer kangaroo
0: yeah okay really thick legs has its arms up
1: okay yeah sorta
0: obino danger floof
1: polar bear what's a danger
0: floof just like like floofy, like poofy. Like, oh, look at them. Okay. And they're dangerous. Okay, okay. What about Unicorn of the Sea?
2: Narwhals! Narwhals!
0: Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon.
1: And I'm Nancy Bompey.
0: And this is Third Pod from the Sun. All right, folks, just a reminder that this is part of our staff picks while third pod is on break. It's kind of holiday themed. Uh, so I hope you enjoy it. And now back to the episode. Let's talk narwhals, which is possibly one of the most fun things I've said in a while. What do you know about narwhals?
1: Honestly, not much. I mean, I know that they are these big kind of whales. They have this big horn thing. That's about it.
0: Well, it actually turns out that scientists don't know a ton about them either. I mean, they know more than you and I probably do, but not as much as you would probably think. But I I think you found out a little bit more about this recently, right?
1: Yeah. So I was at the Ocean Sciences meeting in Portland, Oregon, and I interviewed Kristen Lydra. She's a biologist at the University of Washington in Seattle, and she studies the ecology and the population dynamics of all sorts of arctic marine mammals, but that includes narwhals and polar bears. And for narwhals in particular, you know, they really don't know a lot about this stuff, uh, a lot about these animals. So they're just trying to figure out, you know, what they do and why they do it. But she's also looking at how climate change is impacting narwhals, polar bears, and all these other arctic marine mammals.
0: All right, cool. So let's hear the interview.
2: I didn't really ever plan to study narwhals, but I basically stumbled into a PhD project on them. And so as a student, I spent a lot of time thinking about narwhals and, you know, writing papers about narwhals, and that's just continued for my whole career.
1: When was the first time you heard of a narwhal or even it crossed your desk what did that feel? Were you like, oh, my God, I have to study these things? Or? Oh,
2: I, well, I knew about narwhals. I was really into uh, marine biology and especially whales when I was a kid. So I you know, had books on whales and knew all the species and definitely was aware of narwhals and thought they were cool. But I don't think it ever crossed my mind that I would be studying them. Studying them is really interesting because... We don't know a lot about narwhals. There's a lot to learn. Um, they're really interesting, kind of weird whales. And so, as a scientist, there's so many questions you can ask and so many you know, different directions you can go. And that's, that's exciting.
1: What is it like the first time going into the field? I mean, and seeing a narwhal for the first time? Like, where was that? What happened? What was that like?
2: Yeah, the first time I saw a narwhal, I was a PhD student. And um, I distinctly remember the moment because it was actually so exciting and cool. And it was in the Canadian Arctic and I, you know, just kind of we had landed in a twin otter where we were setting up a camp and I kind of walked up and over the top of this hill and down to the beach and then there were narwhals swimming, you know, right by in front of us. And and they're not like that impressive when you see them because you just see a little sliver of their back. But, you know, just the idea of having a narwhal in front of you is, is pretty cool. I think people are fascinated, you know, just by the idea of the unicorn of the sea. I get a lot of people that come up to me after talks and say they they didn't think narwhals were real so you know they are a little bit magical and strange and it inspires a lot of imagination and fantasy and and um yeah probably also because of the tusk on the males which is you know like a unicorn horn so that's pretty cool.
0: Unicorns of the sea but seriously the horn it's it isn't a horn; it's a tooth. Did did you know that?
1: I don't know. I think I sort of read that somewhere. Maybe that I knew that, but you know, it really does look like a horn. Um, and also, it's made of ivory, which is cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so besides just being majestic, what's it for?
2: We know the tusk is a sexual trait so only males have the tusks and it's basically a symbol of like hierarchy and dominance and males we think use each other use it to size each other up and compete uh, for access to females and we know the tusk is um, closely related to the size of the testes Mm. so it's kind of an outward symbol of like what a good mate you might be.
1: So why don't scientists know a lot about narwhals? Why are they so elusive?
2: Well, uh, narwhals live in the high Arctic. Um, They live in really remote places, far from people. They live in places that are logistically really difficult to get to, really expensive to get to, um, not easy to kind of spend time in because there's no infrastructure and, you know, you need to live in camps, you need to take helicopters or planes. Behaviorally, they're really elusive. They're really shy, uh, skittish animals. They kind of flee quickly if there's like a sound that scares them. And so, you know, you can't just drive a boat up to a narwhal or, you know, fly a helicopter over it. It's impossible.
0: I was picturing a scientist heading out and lassoing a narwhal. I'm, I'm still in this unicorn kick. But I guess that's not how it works. So what are we talking about? Tags, transmitters, what's going on?
2: There are different ways to study narwhals. I mean, one way is to go, in summer, narwhals migrate into pretty specific coastal areas, and you can set up camps and live relatively close to narwhals and observe them from land. Um, You can set out recorders and make recordings. You can sometimes set nets and catch narwhals, and then you can put transmitters on them, which basically let you track the, the narwhals for, you know, up to a year. Other ways to study them are from airplanes or helicopters. So you can fly airplanes over the areas where they live and you know, do transects and count them and figure out how many there are. You can take a helicopter out in springtime over the sea ice and you can land the helicopter on the ice in the habitats where narwhals spend, spend their time in winter. And, and if you wait long enough, the narwhals will come back to the leads or the openings in the ice and then you can, you know, um, observe them and, and, you know, collect samples and things like that. So it, it, it varies, but it all involves a lot of logistics and a lot of patience and waiting.
0: I mean, narwhals are so freaking cool, but they're not exactly close by. So what's it like for the researchers? Yeah, I asked about that.
1: What's it like, I mean, just personally being up away from your family, your friends out in the Arctic, you know, doing this stuff, for long periods of time.
2: You get kind of used to it. You know, it feels pretty natural to me to just disappear in the spring and, and um, you know, be gone for, you know, four to six weeks. It's peaceful, you know. I mean, it's a combination of, being, of really stressful and then really peaceful. You know, you're in this beautiful, serene place and you have time to really kind of focus on one thing and not have a lot of distractions. You know, your phone's not beeping and your emails and all these things at home that distract you like you're just really focused. And, you know, that often gives you a lot of time to think about things and come up with ideas and process information. Um, You know, at the same time, you're isolated and, you know, detached from everybody and you don't have good communication. So there are pros and cons there's less than 60,000 people in all of Greenland. So the communities are um, pretty small, you know, sometimes they're 50 to 100 people, and sometimes they're a couple thousand people. Um, And they are, um, you know, native communities with um, indigenous people and subsistence hunting and, you know, really extremely interesting culture and um, many people who are experts on the ecosystem and all the animals because they, they live off the land and the sea. So, you know, for me, it's always a great privilege to, to work in those communities and talk to people and, and learn from them.
0: I love narwhals, obviously, but Kristen doesn't just study narwhals, right?
2: Right. The most recent trip was uh, last spring um, in Southeast Greenland where we're doing a polar bear study, catching polar bears in Southeast Greenland and tracking them. So yeah, you, I mean, you know, it's a long way. So you go for usually about a month or sometimes six weeks Around Greenland, there are four subpopulations of polar bears, and we've been working, kind of moving around the coast, um, working in different areas for, for several years now, kind of doing broad studies, figuring out how many polar bears there are, um, you know, what are the population trends, what, what's the condition of the bears, how are they doing with the loss of sea ice, have their movements changed, has their habitat use changed, things like that. And um, so our most recent or, or current project is focused in East Greenland, which is a very big area, um, covers, you know, over 20 degrees of latitude and is taking us many years to kind of work our way through in studying the bears from the very southern tip all the way up to the northern part. We study the bears in spring. Um, We uh, usually have a helicopter that we charter for about a month and um, we fly out over the sea ice and we can track the bears um, by, you know, looking at tracks and following them around or, or in some cases just spot them. And then we have a a, a drug that allows us to immobilize them. We fly down and shoot a dart into their rump and it immobilizes them briefly and we can land and then we can take samples from the bear and we can, you know, mark, give it a mark, which is an identifying mark that basically allows us to kind of track the individual through time. And then we can put a satellite collar on it that uh, does pretty much the same thing the narwhal tags do, transmits to satellites and gives us the position of the bears for up to three years. We catch bears that all all ages and sexes, but the the ones that we tag are the adult females, and that's because the adult males, they, they if you put a collar on them, they can just push it right off because they're they're a different shape. They kind of have a cone mm-hmm. head, and they can their shoulders are much bigger than their head, and they can push basically push the collar off onto the sea ice.
1: Oh, so 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 you do the females. Mm-hmm. And will the females then tell you about the population as a whole?
2: Yeah, we use the females as a proxy for what we think, you know, polar bears in that population are doing. You know, of course, you know, having data from from, you know, males specifically would be better. But to date, there really haven't been kind of options for collecting long term movement data from males because they're they're really hard to tag.
0: Do you remember the quiz earlier what I called polar bears?
1: albino danger flutes
0: yes they look so dangerously cuddly i mean i know they can be dangerous but i actually have no idea about the texture of their fur
1: what does a polar bear feel like i mean what is the fur like is it soft Do they smell like i don't know <laughs> <laughs> um th- i wouldn't say they're that soft it's probably it's it's it's
2: probably more coarse um They don't smell. They smell good. They actually hardly have a smell, surprisingly. Um, But it's very warm. So, you know, when you're out there and you're often really your hands are freezing and you might be taking blood or something, you can dig, kind of dig your hands into the, the fur and they warm up in like one or two minutes.
0: Fortunately for me, most of my field experience have been in the warm springs of Tennessee, though I did need to worry about drowning here and there. But seriously, Besides having this awesome experience of working with freaking narwhals and polar bears, what's she actually trying to find out?
2: The overarching theme of everything that I do is, you know, is loss of sea ice in the Arctic and and climate change and you know a system that is changing really quickly into something that is very different, you know, from you know what conditions a lot of these animals are used to and experienced or have experienced in the past. So. You know, I'd say with the polar bears, I mean, we see, of course, you know, that they're using poorer habitat, you know, what we would call, you know, worse ice conditions, or they have to spend more time on land waiting for the sea ice to form. Um, In some places, we see their body condition has declined, so they're not as fat as they were historically. With narwhals, narwhals are trickier. You know, there's still a lot we don't know about the impacts of climate change on them. You know, we've been looking at kind of probably more quantifying, you know, what's important to, to narwhals, like what do narwhals need to be narwhals? And, you know, as we go forward in time, once we have that baseline information, we'll be better able to predict the impacts of climate change. It's, you know, probably some really tricky things to quantify, like, you know, indirect effects in the ecosystem where you, you know, you lose ice and you, you, you know, temperatures change and the prey for narwhals changes and all these things that, you know, aren't that easy to, to get data on, but we hope to have some answers. It's just a fascinating place that, you know, we, we, we should really do everything we can to protect and conserve. You know, as an individual, it's, it's really a privilege and an honor to do my job. And I, I feel, you know, excited to, to learn things and contribute, you know, information scientifically. And then on a personal level, it's just really, you know, special life experiences to be, to be in that system and be in those communities.
0: So, does this make you want to visit Greenland and search for sea unicorns?
1: Well, I mean, it sounds so cool, and it would be great to see one, but all that sitting around and waiting and being quiet, I don't know if that's really for me.
0: (laughs) I can't really imagine you just sitting around and being quiet for extended periods of time. (laughs) All right, folks, that's all from third pod from the sun.
1: Special thanks to Caitlin Camacho for editing this interview. And, of course, thanks to Kristen Lydra for sharing her work uh, with the Unicorns of the Sea and the Polar Bears
0: with us. Uh, This podcast is also produced with help from Lauren LaPuma, Josh Speiser, Olivia Ambrosio, and Caitlin Camacho. And thanks to Kayla Suri for producing this episode.
1: Ag, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this podcast. Please rate and review this podcast. Um, And you can always find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com.
0: All right, thanks all, and we'll see you next time.